0: I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and the second chapter, Matthew chapter number 2. We were in chapter 1 this morning in Sunday school. So I want to look in chapter 2, Matthew chapter number 2 is where we're going to be. Now the Bible says, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Now there's a problem already, right from the get-go. We weighed two verses into Matthew chapter number 2 and We're confronted with a dilemma. Because the Bible said in verse number 1 that Herod was the king. And then the wise men show up in Jerusalem and they said, Hey, we're looking for a king. He was born. He's the king of the Jews. There's a conflict already that's going to erupt in utter violence in just a short while. Verse number 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come... A governor that shall rule my people Israel and then Herod when he had privily called the wise men inquired of them diligently what time the star uh, appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem and said go search diligently for the young child and when you have found him bring me word again that I may come and worship him also Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. And we ought to be careful, because he is cunning in his deception. We found that out in the Garden of Eden, did we not? And now here it is again. He's deceiving or trying to deceive the wise men. And when, when they heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star uh, which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Father, would you today help us Give us, dear God, the things from thy word that only you can. Speak to our hearts. Thank you for the dear folks that are here today. We're grateful. Thank you for those that are listening on live stream. We pray that you would bless them. We're thankful that they're tuning in. Some will listen to this message later on YouTube or on our website or at another time. And we're, we're grateful for our friends and those you bring our way that we might... Uh, have connection with, and we're thankful. So bless today. Have your way and will. We'll thank you for what you do. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew is a fascinating book. He writes primarily to the Jewish people, and his purpose is to, co- is to convince the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, that, that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed their promised Messiah, and so that's the viewpoint from which, uh, from which Matthew writes. He, he, he. Um, I think I think that it would make sense then, seeing that that's that's the vantage point or the perspective from which he writes this book. That that there are in Matthew 129 references that are that are quoted out of 25 uh, different books of the Old Testament. Matthew directly quotes the Old Testament 53 times and and uh, on 76 other occasions he makes reference to them this is interesting because of the 129 references 89 of those were made by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the intent is to show that Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Christ he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy He, he is He's the fulfillment of that. In fact, if you go, if you go to Matthew uh, a little further into the book and, and you get to Matthew 17 and the Mount of Transfiguration, you find a beautiful picture that's given there of us of that fulfillment. Because we have Elijah, the prophets. We have Moses, the law. And they're meeting on the Mount of Transfiguration with the personification of grace. And so the law and the prophets are met in him on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we know how Peter said, let's build a tabernacle to all three. And God the Father spoke, said, no, no, no this is my son, him. You listen to him. And, and, and so uh, the, the, the beautiful picture that is given us there is that everything in the Old Testament, the, the law and the prophets, all point to Jesus Christ. We talked about that a little bit this morning in our, our Sunday school hour. Uh, and so Matthew is telling the Jewish people That in that little town of Bethlehem, in that little cave outside there of the city, that that the birth of Jesus was the birth of their Messiah, and that that story is a story of redemption and mercy extended to us uh, by grace to an undeserving people lost in the darkness of their sin. That's a beautiful story, is it not? And I thank God that it makes all the difference in the world because of him i can face my tomorrows and i'm grateful for the grace of that story last week we talked about the innkeeper and how that for various reasons he had no room in the inn and sometimes he gets a bad rap but nonetheless he did not he he, he did not have room for a number of different reasons jesus did not have room uh, the, the innkeeper did not have room for Jesus there. But today I want to leave that scene and I want to spotlight another prominent character in the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 of Matthew begins with the wise men arriving in Jerusalem announcing that they are seeking a king that has been born and they want to worship the Christ child that was born uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, and, and, and so they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, can I just take a moment and correct something for your understanding of the Christmas story that so oftentimes is given a false picture uh, in in different scenes and things that we see of the story. The wise men were not at the manger, okay? That's not not a biblical view. You, You see the picture of the manger, there's the Mary and Joseph, You know, there's the obligatory Donkey, a goat, a sheep, and a young rooster. Okay, so you get that picture there, and they're kneeling around all the shepherds, and guess who else is there giving gifts? It's the wise men. Didn't happen. The wise men weren't there. They did not show up until two years later, and, and, and the Bible is, I think, pretty, pretty clear uh, on the timetable of all this happened. Notice, notice that, that, that it was Herod that said, tell me, let me know when you find the young child. And then when the wise men arrive in Bethlehem, they don't go to a manger, they go to a home, to a house. And they see Mary and who? The young child. So it's not talking about a babe anymore. These were wise men that went on a long journey. And the fact that when Herod found that he was mocked, as you continue to read that chapter, as Herod found that he was mocked of the wise men, what did he do? He killed all the children from two years old and under. And so we know that, that it was approximately that time period that uh, after the birth of Christ that these wise men showed up in order to worship the Lord. And they did indeed present him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's symbolism behind all that that we don't have time to go into this morning. Now, we're walking into this scene and we bump headlong in with a man who is historically noted for his paranoia. His name is Herod, and the Bible said when Herod the king had heard these things, what things? That they're looking for a king, he was troubled, verse number 3 tells us. Now he's known officially as Herod the first, but history has called him Herod the great. Now he's called great for the main reason of of, of his architectural Genius, if you want to frame it that way, he was a builder, and he built many notable things throughout <clears throat> the 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 land of Palestine. He spent forty years in building uh, that phase of the temple that is known as herod's temple it was It was quite an edifice in its day, covered and bejewelled by gold and it was a long building process and and in it he sought glory for himself he he built the enclosure at the tomb of the patriarchs. I've been there one time in my life. You can't get in for the most part. I was there one year. They opened it up. We paid our driver extra. He took us in, and we actually got to go in to the tomb of of, of Abraham and Isaac, and it was, a, it was an amazing thing there. And and the enclosure around that was something that Herod himself constructed. He built the port at Caesarea Maritima. And, Luke and others that went with us there are are aware of that, and and, uh, Stephen Marie and Judy, you remember standing at that port there. It was there that they found, after denying for years that the story of Jesus was true and that Pontius Pilate ever even really existed, then they find a tablet with Pontius Pilate's name written on it. Isn't it amazing how long it takes the world to catch up with the Bible? I want you to stay with me because what I'll say next may disturb you a little bit. Do me a favor. Don't judge me too harshly if I don't throw my hat all in the ring with all of the brilliant scientists that don't believe there's a God. Because the Bible says the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. So I'm going to question men that do not believe in god and think that somehow we came from a tadpole that came from a whatever that came from a big bang and he grew a tail and climbed a tree lost his tail and now he teaches at our universities and and instructs us on life if you don't believe that there's a god you have no true foundation because the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom that's where wisdom comes from it comes from god and 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 so the world's catching up all the time. It was, it was Herod that constructed the fortresses at, at uh, Herodium. And, and if you've ever been to the Holy Land, don't ever miss going on top of Masada. What an incredible fortress that was there, that was, that was built and overtaken by the zealots. It's a, it's a tragic story. And yet Herod built it in case things turned against him. Uh, he built Herodium. He built Caesarea... maritime, and he built Masada. So he's building places that he can flee to in case the tide turns against him. He built lavishly. He lived lavishly, and it was all financed by heavy taxation that was placed upon the people of Judea. In spite of the fact that he was a great builder, in reality there's nothing in this man that would entitle him to the distinction of being called the Great. Whatever Herod was, Herod was not Herod the Great. There was nothing great about him. His personal life was, was absolutely inundated with perversion. He married his family members off to other family members, a daughter to, to, to one of his brothers. It was, it was constant. It was constant sickness and sensualness, and it was just, just his whole entire life was degenerate rather than having them marry into outside families that might infiltrate his family he preferred he preferred to try to arrange marriages between his sister and his son and all sorts of deviant things he was an uh, Adomian by the Edomite bloodline of Esau he was called king But I want to remind you that his position held no sway in heaven. Men on earth may call him king, but the true king was born in Bethlehem's manger. And his rise to power took place mainly because of his father's friendship with Julius Caesar. He was a political chameleon. And and because of that he survived the defeat of Pompey, the assassination of, of Julius Caesar, the defeat and suicide of Mark Antony, and then and then when Octavian rose to the throne, uh, he, he held on for dear life. He was as vile and as ruthless as a man could possibly be. And he filled Jerusalem with spies and infiltrators that would literally uh, uh, turn people. The, the, the city was filled with foreign mercenaries, spies. And if you ever said anything in a dark alley about Herod, you must fear for your life because Herod would be after you. Nobody was safe. Listen, no one was safe. No one was safe. Didn't matter, didn't matter your pedigree, didn't matter your name, didn't matter, didn't matter who you were, if you if, if you spoke or were even suspected. Boy you ought to read the lineage. It's it's a, it's an absolute lineage of, of decadence, how that people in his own family turned against each other one after the other. And if he murdered he murdered because he thought you were somehow a rival, and you fell under his suspicion, nobody was safe. He crushed the Hasmonians that were people from whom he descended. He murdered a 17 year- old brother-in-law simply because he was more popular than he was with the Jewish people. He married a beautiful uh, married a beautiful um, uh, Maccabean princess by the name of Miriam. He murdered her just because he thought for some reason that he had lost favor in her sight. And then for good measure he murdered both of their sons. And so it didn't matter to Herod. Now stay with me. Stay with me. I'm giving you the dark side of the Christmas story. Okay? And there is a dark side. Five days before his own death, his son that was the heir to his throne was executed and eliminated simply because he couldn't stand the thought of somebody, somebody taking his place. Remember the slaughter of the boys? Two years and under? One of those boys was his own infant child that he suspected possibly could my own son grow up and be my rival. And so history records that when Augustus Caesar heard that he had slaughtered his own son, Caesar made this statement about Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. He was kinder to his animals than he were, was his own children. Now, why all that, preacher? Because I want you to get this. This is the slithering brood of the serpent. This is the, this is the temperature. This is the world in which our Savior entered. Sometimes, sometimes we look at our world and we think things are so off kelter Things are so out of whack. The world is so wicked. The world is so vile. The government is so wretched. And sometimes, as believers, it drives us into moods of depression and despondency and discouragement. And listen to me. A church that is depressed and despondent and discouraged ceases to be a light in darkness. We stop shining. We stop singing praises as... Paul and Barnabas did in the jail cell when the angel came and broke the chains and the earthquake shook them and let them out. Listen, we stop doing those type things. What do we do? We look around us and we find ourselves engulfed in misery and we pull it over us like a blanket. Because the world around us is hard and difficult. It's always been that way. Hello. Let me help you with this. It always will be that way. This is going to be better for you. So get, write this down. It ain't getting better. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you excited that you came to church today? No. We might as well wake up. Listen to me. The better is coming. Carolyn's found the better. We haven't. Gene's got the better. We don't. My mom and dad, they are enjoying the better. Okay. The reality of the matter is this world has has always been bad, and and the temperature uh, uh, when God came in human flesh was not a good one. Now look again, would you with me please? Verse 2. Verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Now watch this. And all Jerusalem with him. So Herod wasn't the only one bothered by the news of the Messiah. He's not the only one that was disturbed by all of this. It's not the only reason for the trouble in Jerusalem was not just Herod. Rather than rejoicing that the Messiah had been born, rather than celebrating His birth, these people in Jerusalem were extremely nervous, and understandably so, they thought that His presence would bring hardships on them and disrupt their lives. Because if Herod felt his power was threatened by a rival there's no telling what he would do but they were certain he would act with vengeance. Let me give you a typical entertainment for Herod when he he felt depressed was that he would throw a drunken party and round up seven to eight hundred jailed people that were viewed as insubordinates and, and less than loyal subjects. And there was a platform in the center of the city where they would one by one be crucified or group by group crucified. And he and his concubines would would watch the crucifixions as they drank into the night. As people writhed and died on the trees they erected there. Another one of his entertainments was to take people that were considered enemies of the state and put them in a small room, locked them in, let them sit for a while. Then he would send in his fully armored Roman legions, his legionnaires. And they would walk through literally slaughtering every single person as Herod urged them on. And so rumors of a rival king, yeah, 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 the whole city was upset. Why? Because if, if this is true, if these wise men are telling us the truth, and this king comes into our world, our world's going to be utterly disrupted. It's no wonder Herod had a private bodyguard of 2,000 soldiers that watched him. He was absolutely paranoid. Now look at me. Listen to me. Do you know why people reject Jesus Christ today? It's because they're afraid he's going to change their world. What's my mom and my daddy going to say? What's my, well, how will my family react? If I, if I tell my family, i got to say, what, what will my family do? How will they react? How's that going to affect me on the job? I'm one of the good old boys. I, I curse up a storm with everybody else. We sit around and drink afterwards. We have parties on Friday night. I sold my wild oats. We got things in our life I shouldn't have. If 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 I get saved, if I let Jesus in my life, how's it going to affect the way I live, my friendships, the places I go, the people I know, the things I do? How will it affect me? And by the way, let me just help you with this. I'm not going to. I'm not going to put some some uh, uh, white sugar on it. I'm, I'm I'm not going to. I'm not going to powder it up like a good donut. The reality of the matter is, Jesus will change your life. I'm not going to. Well, no, no. Just trust. No, no. Jesus will change your life. You say, well, well, Pastor, what about this habit? Well, wait a minute. I didn't make an issue of that habit. Neither did Jesus. You did. So, when a man sits down with me and says, "Well, if if I get saved, I'll have to quit." Well, I didn't make that issue. You made the issue. So obviously what you're doing is you're distinguishing something in your life that you value more than the Son of God and more than the eternal destiny of your own soul. So whatever it is you're saying, well, if I, if, if, if I get saved, I'm going to have to give that up. You don't have to give that up to get saved, but what you've done is you've identified for yourself the very thing that's keeping you from being saved. It's repentance. The importance of coming to know Christ as your Savior. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when you ask Jesus into your heart, what Jesus does for you is he begins begins a process. That word becomes, uh, all things become new. That word become is in the linear sense. It means it starts becoming. Nobody became new. I mean, just everything's different. No, no. My life has been a... It's been a process and still is in the process of becoming new. Every day I live and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. So so out of fear for changes in their life. Out of fear over things they they they're afraid they'll have to give up. Ways they'll have to have to walk away from friendships, they'll have to leave. Habits they'll have to bury forsake. Out of fear for that, they continue down the same sad path. And that's one of the lessons of the Christmas story, is that they were afraid if this is true, if the Savior has come, if the Messiah is here, what's it going to do in our world today? They were afraid. Now, here's what I want to do. Okay, there's the, dark, <laughs> there's the dark side of the Christmas story. There was a nut, a paranoid, insane man on the throne named Herod. And he was striking fear into the hearts of people. But from that, there are some lessons for us today that are, that are imperative for us to get out of this part of the Christmas story. What are they? Here's number one, and I want you to write this down because this is original. I thought this up yesterday. I want you to think about this. Here it is. Wise men still seek Jesus. You ought to write a plaque. Chad is stunned. Pastor. Pastor Papa, what a, what a wise saying. No, I know it's a cliche. and you, It's on plaques everywhere. It's on Christmas cards. Okay. There it is, wise men at the manger, and the statement, wise men still seek Jesus. But it's true. I don't care how cliché it is. I don't care how catchy, what a catchy little phrase that is. It is true. Wise men still seek Jesus. And that's important. Now, if somebody says this, and I love this, I love hyper-spiritual people. And uh, 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 for just a few seconds, I love them. And, and, and so here's, here's what they say. They say something like this. Well, let me tell you something, preacher. I didn't seek him. He sought me. I didn't find Jesus. Jesus found me. Well, that's, that sounds really good. But let's, let's just take the Bible and let God speak for himself. He said in Proverbs 8, 17, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. I like that. You know what he says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13? And ye shall seek me and find me when ye search for me with all your heart. So the reality of the matter is this listen, the, the, the phrase seek the Lord is given 27 times in the scriptures. 27 times. You remember what Paul said when he stood before the intellectuals and philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens? You remember, what, you remember what Paul delivered to these men who had all kind of gods around them? You know what he said to them? He said to them, And God hath made of one blood all nations for men to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Paul said to them, you know what guys, you've got a bunch of gods around you, but you need to seek the true God. And that word, if happily they may, they may feel after him, the word feel means to grope, as a man who is blind, or a man who is, is, who is engulfed in darkness, would grope, he's trying to find the truth. Can I just say this to you, and I'm so glad for this. Unlike what many of our Calvinist friends would tell us, my relationship with Jesus Christ is not mechanical. And it's not forced. And it is a two-way street. He seeks me, and I'm commanded to seek Him. And we embrace each other. We're commanded to seek the Lord while He may be found. So wise men still seek Jesus, number one. You ought to pray for wisdom for you and your loved ones that are lost. Pray that the light of God's grace and God's glory would penetrate and break through their mind that has been galvanized against truth by a world that denies everything that's righteous and everything that's good. Preacher, can you give me proof of salvation? Absolutely. And the change that's been brought into the lives of thousands and millions of people who once were this, and now upon their reception of Jesus Christ, they've become something entirely different. My dad was a lost man, working for the railroad. But when Jesus entered his life, he changed him into an absolutely different person. Yes, yes, the evidence is found in the lives of of human beings that God has changed into His image. Number two, evil men still seek to destroy truth. The spirit of Herod, not only do wise men still seek Jesus, but evil men still seek to destroy the truth. The spirit of Herod is alive and well today. And by the way, it's all through our world. You can find it there. Men that deny God. Men that don't believe in Christ. It's far more prevalent today than ever. And, 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 and you know, look at me, do you know, do you know why... You know why there has been such a turn, of, a turn of sentiment toward the church in our culture today? It's because Paul wrote Timothy and tell, told him that the church of the living God should be the pillar and ground of the truth. And the one thing that a lost and dying world despises, it's truth. You know why? Because truth sets them free. And if you're set free, you have to admit that you're imprisoned. So if there's, if there's truth that brings freedom, what does that mean for them? That means they're embracing falsehood that imprisons them to lies. And so no wonder there's a turn of sentiment across our nation. From California all the way down to Florida, there's a turn of sentiment toward the house of God that used to be reverent. You know when I was a kid nobody ever broke into a church? Nobody ever vandalized the property of a church. They may destroy the city, but they're not going to mess with a church. Why? Because there was respect for God. Today, I want to tell you something. just had a friend that, that had his church broke into and vandalized. Things stole out of it. People don't respect the house of God any longer because our culture has turned against truth. Don't ever be shocked, my dear friend, when opposition arises to the truth. That's Satan's job. It always has been. And until he's in the lake of fire, he'll continue. He'll continue on that march. Number three, our God is greater. Now, I'm not going to spend time here, but I, I I just want to just say this. Listen, our God's greater. No, no. Wait a minute. Hold it. No, stop. Herod. He's trying to stop the work of God. He's going to smother truth. He's going to kill the Messiah. He's going to deceive the wise men. No, no. This is Herod. This is the world Jesus was born in. You know what it tells us? You know what lesson we get? Hey, guess what? Our God's greater. Our God's greater. He's greater than the Herods of the world. He's greater greater than your problems. He's greater than whatever you're facing. He's greater than your heartbreak, your heartache. He's he's greater than whatever it is that has set himself or itself or their self against you. Your God, our God is greater and cannot defeat his will, will for our life. First John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he that's in the world. So whatever you're facing today, let me just give you some word. God's greater. Preacher, you don't know what I'm facing. No, God's greater. You know what happened to me. God's greater. You don't know what they said against me. No, God's greater. You know what's happening uh, in my life and in my family. No, God's greater. Just God's greater. Our God is greater than anything this world can ever throw against us. Last of all, and I think this is important, God, listen to this, ready? God will triumph in the end. Because God is greater, God wins. Wait a minute, no, no, that means you and I win. We win. God's greater. And God always triumphs in the end. Now, you say, okay, that's cut and dried. No, it's not cut and dried. The psalmist struggled with that thought. Read the psalms. Good night. You want to talk about emotions, raw emotions on paper? Listen to David in the psalmist. Psalm 82, verse 2. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Son. Did you you hear that? Let's say I call on Brother Gary. Brother Gary, would you pray? And Gary stands up and he says, our Heavenly Father, how long will you judge unjustly? And why are you accepting the persons of the wicked? That whole area is clearing out. They're moving. Just in case a beam falls and crushes him. We're not going to pray that way. But listen, this is inspired of God. God is showing us not how we may verbalize. God's showing us how we feel. I mean, this ain't, God this ain't right. No, I'm, I'm serving you. And all this happens. How long are you going to judge unjust? That don't make sense to me, God. Well, that's the Bible. I don't know. Psalm 94, verse 3. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? And then he follows that up in the next verse. And he says, How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. How long are you going to let this go on? Okay? If I were you, I stopped it a long time ago. I just want you to know that. If, if, if I had your power in your position, they wouldn't be talking the way they're talking right now. Don't raise your hand, please. Look at me. Do not raise your hand. This is on live stream. How many of you to kill people in your family? Or a neighbor that keeps complaining about your dog barking? Or your grandkids running wild at 1030 at night? Well, it's Idaho, and the sun's still up, you know. No, no, really, I'm kidding, but, 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 but how many of you would have thought about, okay, I, I can handle them, I'd I, I settle that score. That's how David fell. Let me shock you with something. Let's go to, just, just think about Revelation. Tribulation period's going on. Martyrs are in heaven. What do you think the martyrs are doing? Well, they're all sitting around with a harp on a cloud. You know what they're doing? They're singing and humming Kumbaya and roasting heavenly s'mores. That's not what the Bible says is happening in heaven. Listen to what happens. To the, listen to the martyrs. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on there? <laughs> so in heaven in the tribulation period, they're not singing kumbaya. They're saying, hey, Father, when are you going to deal with them? Did you know what they did to me? They kill me. I'm a martyr. When are you going to settle the score with them? Why haven't you settled the score? That's, that's conversation in heaven that God records for us. So the idea that, okay, God triumphs in the end. woo Okay, it's over. It's settled. No, it's not settled. We have to be reminded time and time again. Look in verse Matthew 2. Can I just give you something real quick, and we'll tie a knot in this. Matthew 2, verse 19. Read these words. Look at this. Five words. But when Herod was what's the next verse? Ooh. But when Herod was dead, look at me. Thus ends all tyrants. Thus goes all the way of the earth. For so poor unto man wants to die, and after this the judgment. Mussolini, Hitler, Idi Amin, Mao Zedong, murdered millions. I got up on a rainy morning in Beijing, went through the inclement weather, walked across Tiananmen Square, got in line, and watched the body of Mao Zedong frozen in time in a glass encasement. And Susie said, why do you want to go there? I said, because I want to see a man whose body is here and whose soul is in hell. You can preserve his body all you want to, but you mark this down. A man that murdered millions of people, I mean just literally butchered generations of people. He's dead. And the reality of the matter is everything that wicked man does on this earth is as temporary as he is. After marrying The Maccabean princess Miriam falling out of favor in their marriage. By the way, Herod was married ten times. At one time, nine wives lived together. Fascinating story. They were ratting on each other, telling on each other, trying to get each other killed so they could move up a notch in the table, I guess. I don't know, seat in the table. So he murders beautiful Miriam. And he's so entranced by her beauty that after his fit and rage of anger and he killed her, he regretted it. I I killed my most beautiful wife. So he began to rant at the other wives. You're not Miriam. You're you're not Miriam. And, And he began to confront them by screaming at them that they weren't Miriam. So he's walking amongst the wharfs one day at Caesarea Maritime. And he sees a prostitute that resembles Miriam, and in his insanity, his paranoia, he thinks Miriam's come back. And so he seizes her, contracts from her a a disease that racks his body with pain and drives him deeper into insanity. He's dying now. He's dying of his disease. He's afraid that no one will come and mourn him. Really? You think? Maybe. Nobody's going to be crying. And in fact, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about, you know, having the Gatorade on ice. Party going to break out when word hits the street. Herod's gone. But so afraid that that's going to happen... He has a large group of men, distinguished men, men of high regard in Jerusalem. He he has them um, brought to him in Jericho where he's at. And the reason is this. He orders his people, when I die, murder all of them. Because that's the only way true grief will be shown when I die. So if I murder everybody like this, all these high-ranking men, the whole city will mourn and I'll get the glory from it. His son Archelaus and sister Salome did not do that, but Herod did die. Now history records two ways that he possibly died. It's one of the two. Some historians say this, other historians say that. I'll give you both sides because neither side is good. His excruciating pain from his disease that he caught from the prostitute was so agonizing that they call, they call it Herod's evil. His death was so horrible, so excruciating. He screamed so loudly. That They called it Herod's evil. He died horrendously. Other historians who are of, of, of note in their accuracy say that he died because he stabbed himself to death because of his pain. And so those words, when Herod, when Herod was dead... Do you know what that says to me? That says to me that the king died but our king lives. So every, every look, look, listen, listen. We're greater than the evening news. We're greater than the prognosticators. I'm not saying... Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't keep up to date. I'm not. I'm not making any statement. I'm simply saying something that's true. Preacher, what's going to happen in 2022? I don't know. After 2020, son, there's a there's a lot of prognosticators, a lot of fortune tellers went out of business. Okay, they're now bowling with their ball their crystal ball i mean i don't know i I don't know what's gonna happen but i tell you this much i can tell you who's king he's lord of lords he's the only true potentate he is king of kings and while all the puny featherweight men with their narcissistic egos placed upon them, sit on the thrones of this world and think their policies are changing history. History is His story. And they can't breathe their next breath without His allowance. When all is said and done, when all is said and done, His throne will be in Jerusalem. (laughs) And the whole world, Brother Ernie, is going to do obeisance to Him. Jesus is going to reign. Jesus lives. Now listen to me. The paranoid king is dead. The babe in the manger. The child still lives. And he's our Lord and Savior today. Boy, you ought to praise him. You ought to thank him. Curtis Hudson, one of the great preachers. I love Dr. Hudson. What a great man. I remember standing as uh, uh, in a... In a meeting he was in, when he was dying of cancer, and he sang to the top of his lungs, I'm on the winning side, I'm on the winning side. We are, and it's because of him. Let's bow our heads, could we? On the winning side, no matter what the world brings or throws against us, no matter how dark it may get, Jesus is is Lord. Now if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, can I tell you the most important thing in your life is that you come to know Jesus. Are you saved today? Are you saved? How many of you by an uplifted hand would testify and say, that child that we read about in Matthew chapter number 2, that child is my Savior today? Would you lift your hand? Good. Praise God. Wonderful. Amen. Now if you can't lift your hand, we're not trying to embarrass you. We want to help you. We want to help you come to know Him in a personal way. It's not just that He's in the books or the book. We want it to be personal, where He's in your life, where you know Him for sure. So if you're not saved today, let us take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure. Let me ask you a question today. As a child of God, are you seeking Him? Are you seeking Him? Every day, do you seek His will, His face, His guidance, His love? Seek the Lord while He may be found. Don't let a paranoid Herod disrupt your life. When he's gone, when they're gone, when it's gone, Jesus still reign, our father we love you today we thank you for your love for us thank you dear God for your sovereign power over a world of darkness help us dear God to remember that our King still lives we'll praise you Lord for what you do in the name of Jesus our Savior we ask these things amen